Hi, this is Gordon Russell, host of The Neutral Ground, the New Orleans Advocate's weekly podcast on the stories behind some of the stories that are making waves in South Louisiana this week. Thanks to our sponsors, Gardner Realtors, and thank you for joining us. Okay, today I'm going to talk to Bryn Stoll about the scandal involving LSU basketball coach Will Wade. Uh, next, Stephanie Grace will stop in to talk about the latest in the Louisiana governor's race. And last, I will sit down with Tyler Bridges to talk about the latest snag that may get in the way of the convention center's plans to build a new hotel. Okay, sitting down with me first is reporter Bryn Stoll, who uh, is an investigative reporter assigned to our Capitol Bureau. Uh, Bryn has been covering the story of Will Wade, uh, the LSU basketball coach, embattled LSU basketball coach. Thanks for joining me today, Bryn. Hey, happy to be here. So let's start with what's Will Wade's status right now? So the university has decided that he is suspended indefinitely. Um, so he is, he's in limbo. It's, it's unclear if they're going to bring him back eventually or if he's, if this is, he's already coached his last game at LSU. Um, he, some, some reports surfaced last week about additional wiretaps that he was uh, caught on talking about recruiting. And this is a, this is a, a scandal that sort of followed him since October. And apparently um, the athletic director and some other LSU officials wanted him to come in and talk about his role and he refused. And so they've said until he does that, uh, he can't coach anymore. So LSU clinches the SEC championship on Friday with the assistant coach serving as coach, essentially. Exactly right. Yes. So they're having their best season in memory, and uh, but they're sort of got this giant dark cloud over it. Yeah, it's it's been. I think uh, this is the best team in at least a decade. Um, probably going back, uh, the last Final Four team was over a decade ago. Um, this team looks pretty darn good, and they um, they clinch an outright SEC championship with a with a blowout win at home over Vanderbilt. And Will Wade is not in the building. Um, right, the architect of, of of really the big turnaround of this program. And Javante Smart, one of the star players, was also on the bench, and he's figured in this scandal as well. Can you remind us, like, what, what what did the latest news, the wiretapped call that that uh, got reported on, what, what what came out in that call? So, so a story came out last week. Um, both Yahoo Sports and ESPN reported, um, apparently based on transcripts of FBI wiretaps that are uh, still under seal in a federal case that's headed towards trial right now, um, that. Uh, Will Wade was caught on the on, on, in several cell phone conversations with a federally indicted hoops middleman talking about uh, recruiting matters, not explicitly talking about paying players, but it, it really sounds like that's probably what he's talking about or possibly what he's talking about. Um, and in this particular wiretap, he's talking about, quote unquote, this smart thing, um, which which from all the context looks pretty, pretty strong case that that is he's in fact talking about Javante Smart. Who's now a freshman guard for LSU and and played at Baton Rouge's Scotland Bill Magnet. And what is he saying about Javante Smart? Or if assuming it is when he says the smart kid, what what is what is he saying of, is going on there? So he talks about um, making a, a quote huge ass offer mm-hmm. to uh, to some sort of handler or intermediary. I don't know if it's a family member or coach. The person's unnamed at least so far. Um, that, that Will Wade, he's complaining to this hoops middleman that he'd gone to someone associated with Smart and made what he called a, quote, huge-ass offer, mm-hmm. uh, and that the, the kid never, it hasn't been taking it, and that there seems to be some sort of holdup. He doesn't fully understand, and he says he, he's finally figured out why, and that's because 
Uh, he tilted the offer, and this is using Wade's terminology, he tilted the offer too much towards the mom and the kid, presumably talking about Smart and Smart's mother, okay. uh, though that's unclear. Uh, and that this middleman or handler, this, the coach or relative or something like that, wanted a bigger, quote, piece of the pie. So he's annoyed that Smart has not taken the offer at that point, but then eventually Smart does whatever the offer is, Smart does commit to LSU and plays there now. Right, and he doesn't specify what the offer is, and they should be clear about that. And as of now, we don't have any evidence necessarily that anything was ever eventually delivered. Either. Right. It just, the context makes it sound like they're talking about money, but he could theoretically be talking about things like playing time or something. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's Although it's unclear awkward. how that would be tilted towards the mother, I guess. Right. There's some, some aspects of the conversation that, that make that a little hard to shoehorn in, but it's, I mean, at this point we have no definitive, okay. explicit. And let's, let's talk about, um, help us understand what is going on more broadly. I mean, you said there's a trial coming up next month. Will Wade may be a witness in that case, right? And what, what is, who's on trial and what for exactly? Sure. So if you kind of zoom back to the fall of 2017, you may recall that the feds held a big press conference and they announced a really wide ranging um, that the FBI had been doing a really wide-ranging investigation into corruption in college sports. It was, uh, I think, about a two-year-long uh, investigation involving wiretaps and uh, undercover agents. And they had uncovered basically this big scheme involving some sports agents, um, exec- executives at the sports apparel company Adidas, as well as um, a handful of assistant coaches at various schools, um, involving basically steer- using payments to steer players both towards specific universities and then graduating players toward, or, or players that were turning pro from those universities towards specific sports agents. Uh-huh. Um, and that scandal like really erupted in a big way. It eventually took down Louisville coach Rick Pitino, who got fired. Um, there's been, at this point, about 25 universities have in various ways been linked to this probe. Um, pretty prominent ones, including yeah. uh, University of Kansas and Kansas coach um, Bill Self. Um, uh-huh. University of North Carolina, uh-huh. Maryland, all sorts of, of big-time universities, and now increasingly LSU. Okay. And Will Wade may be called as a witness by the defense in this case. And he's, he's not charged with anything, but these conversations, what, what would be the defense, what do we think would be the defense motive for calling him as a witness? So it's it's sort of an, a strange legal case that the feds are making here. Uh-huh. Um, they are essentially arguing that so so paying a player a recruit money is not itself a federal crime it's mm-hmm. a, it's a violation of the NCAA rules but NCAA rules are not criminal statutes right and so the argument from the feds is that essentially these agents and assistant coaches and Adidas executives um, defrauded the universities because they somehow conspired to funnel payment to, to funnel payments which made these players ineligible uh-huh. and then got ineligible players scholarships that they weren't actually eligible uh, for because they were being paid. Correct. And that, that somehow defrauded the university. And even the, though the universities are essentially benefiting from these great players. Correct. And defense attorneys for these folks, both back in October when the, when the first set of charges went to trial and now we have another trial coming up in, in April, um, have essentially argued that yes, our clients absolutely paid these players. Uh, but it wasn't fraud because the universities were in on it. The coach, like the, the, going all the way up to someone like Will Wade mm-hmm. or like Sean Miller, the head coach at the University of Arizona, they were essentially in on the scheme and they were making money on it so that nobody was being defrauded in this. In this so scheme. so the defense is 
goal here is to show that the universities knew and participated in this, and to that extent, we'd expect them to be bring Will Wade to, to to grill him on how much he knew, how much he about these calls, and how he knew about it, and and whether or not his superiors at LSU knew about knew about it. Certainly, they're going to try to show that he did. Right. Presumably, the idea is to show that that. Um, so Christian Dawkins, the guy who's on the other end of this phone call with Will yeah. Wade, he's one of the defendants here. That people like Christian Dawkins weren't just going out there and handing cash to players for their own purposes. That they were actually talking to coaches and head coaches, people who, who represented the university, who were then asking them to go ahead and make these payments, so that when they were making these scholarship offers, they were fully aware. Mm-hmm. Is the argument from the defense? They were fully aware of what was going on here. That should be an interesting trial. So when when's the trial next month? It's uh, April 22nd is currently when it's uh, scheduled to start up in New York City. Okay. Well, uh, we will be watching you for future developments on the story, Brent. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you. Okay. Joining me now is political columnist Stephanie Grace. Stephanie, thanks for coming by. Sure. Thanks for having me. So let's get caught up on the governor's race. It's been a while since you've been on. Um and I'm not sure there's been a huge stack of developments, but maybe uh, there's been a lot of at least tempests and teapots, I'd say, including a lot of new speculation over whether we'd see a new candidate. Right, on the Republican side. And I think that's partly because not that much is happening. And you certainly have some Republicans who appear to be looking at the two announced candidates and kind of looking around and wondering if there's someone else out there. And somebody actually sort of said this out loud at one point, huh? Right. Scott Wolfong, who is a an official with the state Republican Party, um, he got some pushback for it, for saying it up. I think it was the thing you're not supposed to say out loud, perhaps. He went um, on a radio show and said, everybody's looking for another candidate right, or something like that. Right. And if you're working for Ralph Abraham or Eddie Rusponi, that has to be kind of demoralizing. Right. On the other hand, there have been really persistent rumors that somebody else might get in often without seeming to have a lot of reality behind them. Right. Um, One is Steve Scalise, the, the house minority whip was the majority whip. Um, Would also, it would obviously turn the race upside down if he got in. Absolutely. He would, it would be huge. And he has said, even before the fall elections, he has been really definitive in saying that he was not going to run. Politicians know how to leave themselves wiggle room. He did not. He chose not to. And yet you still hear people say, I don't know, maybe Scalise will change his mind, or I'm hearing he might be th- rethinking it. He, he says he's not. There's no indication he is. And he recently re-upped that, right? He said, Again, absolutely not. Absolutely not, just like I've been saying all along. Okay. Um, one recent development is... There's a guy named John Fleming, who you may remember from uh, the the Senate race in 2016. He was a congressman, kind of a Tea Party congressman from mm-hmm. the Shreveport area. And he ran in the election that John Kennedy won. He lost. He went and joined the Trump administration in the health department. He There were some rumblings that he might run. Uh-huh. He was just confirmed to a new position in the Trump administration by the Senate in the Commerce Department. Uh, okay. So. You don't go for that if you're about to go run for office. Right. So that's somebody else who is really off the table. And frankly, he would seem to maybe have some of the same handicaps. I mean, that the two existing Republican candidates right. do, which is a little bit of a name recognition, right. sort of low profile. North Louisiana, right. like Ralph Abraham. And just to remind everybody, so the announced candidates are Eddie Rasponi and... Uh, Ralph Abraham. And Ralph Abraham, the congressman from the Monroe area. Yes. Eddie Rasponi is a is a wealthy business owner and 
you know, the, the sort of drawbacks each has, I guess you could say, is, you know, Eddie Responi has plenty of money, so he'll have a well-funded campaign, but he's starting from scratch in terms of of people knowing him. And then Ralph Abraham is kind of starting from scratch in a lot of the state, although not in his – there's five congressional districts in the state. He represents – Right, there's six. There's six, I'm sorry. It's okay. And he represents one of them, so – Right, and he doesn't represent any of the major media markets, although – in the last election when he was running, it was interesting, he was running for Congress, even as he was openly talking about running for governor. Because his district is very rural, it's pretty big geographically. So there are parts of it that reach the outskirts of some media markets some bigger media markets. Like Baton Rouge and New Orleans. Yes. Even, right? So he actually ran some ads for Congress. I'm using air quotes here. Uh-huh. <laughs> that got himself. I can confirm he's using air quotes. <laughs> yes. And, um, you know, basically got himself in front of voters in some of these hmm. more populous places. Which was seen as a way to sort of at least uh, kind of prime the pump for a Correct. gubernatorial run. Now, how primed it is, is a big question right. at this point. Um, and so, and he's obviously, both of these guys need to introduce themselves to a lot of voters. And so Responi has written himself a check for $5 million, million. and raised another half million or so, mm-hmm. which puts him at least in a, in a league with John Bell Edwards in terms of money. Well behind him, behind but in the him. same... He's not an order of magnitude behind him. Right. Whereas Ralph Abraham is really starting from scratch almost. He really raised a couple hundred thousand dollars through the end of 2018. Um, he, he has been raising money into 2019. We won't see those numbers for a while. But it's it's not a huge number, especially when you're going up against an incumbent governor who has been raising money for three years now, frankly. Right. He has over $8 million in the bank. And he's got the power of incumbency, and, and of course, everybody knows who he is. And, and so he gets himself on TV, radio, newspaper, whenever he wants to. He right. can make economic development announcements. He can do. He can show up courtside at the PMAC. He can do all kinds of things. Now, uh, of course, it was a remarkable thing when John Bell Edwards won last time. Nobody really gave him a shot, mm-hmm. and, and things kind of aligned perfectly for him. Um, uh, it's a tough thing to win a state like Louisiana as a Democrat, this time you'd have to call him the favorite going going out. Um, I think you really would. And, and this is the, the argument that you hear from Republicans is that he is an aberration, that because the stars aligned a certain way, because his opponent was David Vitter, who had a lot of baggage and who also may have reminded people of Bobby Jindal. Right. Uh, that he was able to win when he really shouldn't have been able to win. And therefore, he is kind of a natural one term governor. Right. I think he is doing a pretty good job of um, pushing that conventional wisdom on it, you know, on its side. His poll numbers have been pretty consistently good. People do seem to like him. Mm-hmm. Um, he has developed strong relationships with the Trump administration. He has been anti-abortion, which probably helps him with some more conservative voters. He, one of the things you hear from Republicans is that he's a tax raiser, right? right. And that he has raised taxes. That's true. He raised taxes because the Republican legislature passed taxes, and that's the way it works. So when they really, you know, you hear about the John Bell Edwards tax increases and the Democratic tax increases, they're bipartisan. And that was because the previous Republican governor really left the budget in a terrible shape. And I think people do remember that. Right, right. And so... What's I mean at the same time, Stephanie, he is beatable certainly, and his sure. poll numbers are not, um, you know, they're not stratospheric, and so it's it's there, there is going to be a group that will vote for a Republican no matter what. 
I mean, I, I assume who, one of these guys, maybe. yeah, at least I would think, you know, and but, but it's sort of remarkable that, that, uh, given all this time, a guy who was treated as a one-termer from the start, mm-hmm. that, that the uh, that the opposition hasn't really been able to mount something more impressive and yet. And you wonder, some of these bigger names, John Kennedy, Jeff Landry, maybe they don't want to lose. Yeah. And these those two in particular really seem to like the role of bomb thrower from the outside. They criticize John Bell Edwards all the time on all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. That's very different from getting in there and saying, this is what I would do differently. Yeah. Or this is what I, if he's spending too much, this is what I would cut, for example. Right. So at this point, I guess, uh, would you conclude, would you, would your best guess would be this is the field? And it's, I mean, the 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 election is, it's still a ways away, sure. but it's not that far away. And it takes, does take, take some time to run an election. It does. It certainly takes some time to, if you're, if you're not the incumbent, you, right. you need to get known, you need to make connections, you need to hire a staff, you certainly need to raise money. There is a feeling that there will be money from outside of the state available to Republicans because it's an off-year election. It's an odd uh-huh. year, and there are only three gubernatorial races in the whole country. So there will be some Republican money available, and mm-hmm. there are going to be outside political groups for both sides. Right. One of them, actually, it's kind of interesting, one of them came put some radio ads up recently. This is a group called Truth in Politics. One of the co-founders is a guy named Layden Grigsby, who's mm-hmm. pretty well known to people in politics. He's a very big Republican funder. Close to Responi, right? Close to Responi, active in school choice issues. Mm-hmm. And this was an ad that was really aimed at not Republican voters, but maybe softening some of John Bell Edwards' support with black voters, uh-huh. where he's obviously expected to do very well as a Democrat. And it talked about how he's not a big fan of charter schools and certainly private school vouchers, which is true. He's not. It it went too far in saying that he hasn't funded early childhood education. Of course, he has funded early childhood education. There is a dispute over how much he plans to fund. He's proposed to fund in the coming budget, which is different from saying he hasn't funded it at all. And actually, some radio stations refused to run the ad because of this, and, and the, the authors had to recut it. Uh-huh. So that's not a great debut for them either. <laughs> and also a sign, I guess, that they think one of the things they need to do to win this election is to is to sort of... Uh, Depress uh, turnout of his supporters. Right. Yeah. right. Um, all right. Well, uh, that's probably about all the time we have, but thanks for taking a few minutes, Stephanie. Sure. And uh, we'll be checking back with you on this race soon. Okay. Sounds good. Thanks. Okay, joining me next is reporter Tyler Bridges, who covers Baton Rouge and a wealth of other things for The Advocate. Thanks for being here today, Tyler. Thank you. Uh, and Tyler has graciously agreed to join us, even though he's under some anesthesia, so you'll pardon him if he uh, seems confused at times. But he seems pretty bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Uh, Occasionally. <laughs> Tyler, you've been writing a lot about the tourism industry and the proposed hotel project and some of the machinations around that and the financing behind it. And you had an interesting story uh, about Errol Williams, the Orleans Parish assessor, and his view of the uh, proposed hotel project. Um, and the kind of a crucial, the crucial bit of that is he doesn't really, he doesn't think that this thing can be treated as a nonprofit, right? Yeah, so the convention center wants to build a 1,200-room hotel on the upriver side of the convention center. And 
to make it, the deal happen, there has to be huge public subsidies, they say. And one of those subsidies that uh, the convention center board and, and, the, uh, and the developers are seeking would be to have the hotel declared uh, exempt from property taxes. Now, normally hotels pay property taxes, but in this case, they are saying that the owner would be a nonprofit and as a nonprofit, it would be exempt from property taxes. And this is kind of a stratagem. I mean, it's not really a nonprofit in the sense that we normally consider nonprofits to be, I guess. And and that's Errol Williams, the assessor, said he doesn't really at this point he doesn't see how he could grant that status. Essentially, right? Yeah the the the, the land would be by on, on, on the convention center. If the hotel, if the convention center financed the hotel, it would be exempt because it's a governmental entity. Governmental entity, but in this case, it would be financed by with bonds floated by a nonprofit. Uh, but everyone else involved is are, are, are profit-seeking folks. And I think essentially Errol Williams is saying that this is just a, a way to avoid paying property taxes. He's essentially saying, I think, is if it looks like a duck, walks like a duck, then it's a duck. And I should note that the um, the hotel is is the, the the financing plan has not yet been fully nailed down. Um, work has not yet begun on it, but the developers are, and the convention center are trying to, to, to get this piece in place to be able to save a bunch of money um, as they kind of nail down their plans for the financing for this proposed upriver uh, hotel. And the way that they've described this, I mean, this is kind of crucial to making it all work, right? They, they haven't said that not having this nonprofit status would kill the project, but they've this is yeah. This is one of the, the one of the subsidies they want for this uh, hotel. The upper one of a number of subsidies, of but it's a big center. one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it would it would have a pretty material impact on this project. Yeah, two million dollars per year um, over forty years, uh, and the hotel overall would cost about five hundred and fifty million dollars. Okay, so that's something that's uh, sort of out there and I guess is unresolved. And Errol Williams said he would not be able to resolve it until he sees kind of a more complete package, right? Yeah, and, and it kind of it's interesting because um, you tend not to think about the assessor until unless maybe you own a home or something and, and you have a direct issue with his office. But there, here's a guy who really makes decisions uh, that have a huge impact. Oh, this would be a big one, yeah. On the tax base for the city and how much money the, then the city can collect to spend for various things, whether whether it's police or whether it's fire or whether it's cleaning up or... Fixing the sewer system. Fixing or, the sewer system. Yeah. And in this case, you really want an honest person who's going to follow the law in that, in, in that position. And this is the case where Errol Williams is saying to the uh, convention center, um, you know, the law says that... Uh, uh, despite your 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 proposed strategy, this is uh, this would be taxable. I got to do it this way. Yeah. All right, and so uh, let's move on to you had another interesting uh, story that kind of you know related to the same topic in a way it was about the way the city counts its tourism numbers, um, and what you found was that they had essentially switched from one method to another, which uh, which causes our our number of tourists who come here to look substantially higher than it was a few years ago. But really, this is partly just a difference in methodology, right? Yeah. Back in 2010, um, at the behest of then Lieutenant Governor Mitch Landrieu, 
the Boston Consulting Group did a study and said that in 2018, the tricentennial for New Orleans, the city, uh, the goal would be to have 13.7 million visitors. And uh, under, but then it turned out that the, um, the city did meet that goal for 2017 uh, with 17 million visitors. But, and it's a big but, they met it because uh, only after changing uh, the, 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 the way, that, or the, the entity that would do the surveying to count how many visitors came to New Orleans, the same entity that said that, 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 made, that led to the prediction for 13.7 million visitors in 2017 was the University of New Orleans' Hospitality Research Center. And they said uh, their count for 2017 was 11 million. But by then, the, the year before, the uh, New the, Orleans company, the, the, the tourism marketing agency, uh, they had replaced UNO with a, a national firm called DK Shiflet. And lo and behold, D, DK Shiflet's numbers for 2017 were 17.7 million. So the goal from 2010 was indeed met was easily met under the new under the new metrics but really they moved the goalposts here obviously and one of the things you pointed out in the story was that they started counting as tourists essentially people who come from relatively nearby right yeah if you if you if you live in Covington and you come to New Orleans for the day uh, on a Saturday um, under the this national firm DK Shiflet you are counted as a visitor to New Orleans and uh, the previous uh, folks doing the surveying for visitor count in New Orleans, uh, University of New Orleans' Hospitality Research Center, uh, they would not count that person from uh, Covington or Slidell mm -hmm. or Laplace. It'd have to be somebody uh, from at least 50 miles away. So there's a, a big, much bigger number under this new count of, what are, of, of day trippers to New Orleans. And I guess the last thing I wanted to ask you about is, is sort of why does this matter? I mean, this the meeting this goal did not mean that our tourism industry officials got big raises or bonuses or anything like that, but it is a crucial number to measure accurately. And this is something that's happening at a time when there's a big debate about what the tourism industry contributes to the city, right? Right. You know, the bigger number for them, the, the, uh, uh, the better the tourism industry looks, it gives them more political uh, clout, and that is an important issue, as you mentioned, because the mayor Cantrell is saying, "Hey, um, tourism industry, you're getting too much of the money that is collected from the hotel tax, and the city needs a portion of that to be able to pay for um, all the problems that are the costs at the uh, sewage and water board drainage." Mm -hmm. And so, um, and you've got the tourism industry pushing back and saying, "We're." generating all this money and we're such a big part of the economy. Yeah, they, they are saying we are essentially the, the goose that lays the golden egg. Mm -hmm. and, and they're saying, um, you know, we create so many jobs, we generate so much tax revenue, we have so many visitors here, including uh, over 17 million in 2017. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, uh, they, they have met that after changing uh, their, uh, how, the, how, the, how it is surveyed. Now, it's worth mentioning that they say, the tourism industry folks say, we didn't make the change to be able to, to come up with a higher number. They said uh, they did it because the city, the state tourism office had made that change and mm -hmm. they thought it was uh, much much better to have everybody on the same page of counting with a national firm that does for other major cities as well. Okay. 
Well, uh, Tyler, thanks for uh, taking a few minutes to join me today. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Gordon. All right. The Neutral Ground is brought to you by Gardner Realtors. We welcome your feedback and your ideas for future shows. Email me at grussell, with two S's and two L's, at theadvocate.com, or call me at 504-636-7437. See you next week.